On April 28, 2014, Sergeant Sean Farrell, a native of a small town in upstate New York, was on patrol with his unit in the Kapisa province of Afghanistan when those he was with began to take fire from both rocket-propelled grenades as well as small arms. What ensued was a horrific firefight. In fact, witnesses would later say that it was one of the worst that they had ever been in. It lasted for several hours. Sergeant Farrell was manning the gun turret in his tactical vehicle, the most vulnerable location in his unit. And he engaged multiple enemies until his gun became disabled, at which point he turned to a secondary weapon and continued to engage the enemy. Knowing that the lives of his brothers in arms, his comrades that day, were literally in his hands, he rotated his turret to improve his weapon's range. And in so doing, he made himself vulnerable. While this young sergeant was equipped with the best armor that the U.S. military can give, it wasn't enough. And Sergeant Farrell took a round just below his arm in one of the few spots that's exposed on a soldier's armor. He continued to fire that weapon, though, until eventually he collapsed in his turret. Sergeant Farrell was then evacuated by chopper, dust off to be specific, to Bagram Airfield, where I was serving as the chaplain at the Craig Joint Theater Hospital there. I was there in the trauma bay when they brought him in. I watched and I prayed as they did everything they could to save this young man's life. And I was there in the moment when they knew there was nothing else they could do. You know, you watch movies and television shows, and that moment is so dramatic, right? They, they, they finally stop, they, they look at a clock, and they call the time. In reality, that moment is just a sullen realization when everybody finally gives up. And we knew in that moment that he would not be saved. Sharon Farrell left behind his young bride and his parents. But the other members of his unit, they all went home safely because Sergeant Farrell wouldn't give up. They lived because of his resolve to stand fast and defend his position. His final words became a rallying cry for his comrades to fight and win the battle. He said this just before he lost consciousness. I got him. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a battle that is going on around us today that is more fierce and longer-lasting than even the battle that Sergeant Sean Farrell was engaged in. The battle of which I speak is taking place in numerous arenas. It's a battle over the God-ordained institution of the family. Organizations around us right here in our own country are fighting to do away with the normalcy of the institution that we know that God gave us. They're fighting to do away with the family unit upon which societies have been built for millennia. It's a battle over the unborn right here in the United States since 1973 with the legalization of Roe versus Wade. Some 62 million lives estimated have been lost to abortion. 62 million children have never been born. 62 million lives that were knitted together in their mother's wombs 
have never seen the light of day. It's a battle raging for the lives of orphans. Conservative estimates are that there are nearly 200 million orphans worldwide, and that doesn't even include the 500,000 children in the foster care system in the United States. Did you know, Church of Jesus Christ, that right here in San Antonio, child protective workers are sleeping in their offices tonight with children because there aren't enough foster homes to take them in? It's a battle for the lives of children. The list of arenas in which the battle is raging is too exhaustive to list. And frankly, it can be a bit overwhelming, even discouraging. But you know there's an old hymn that you may remember. The lyrics were these. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. You know, when I sang that as a child, I always thought that was a, it was a battle cry. It was a, it was a call for me to, to begin marching into battle, and I was excited about that. But, but I think when we think of it as a battle cry and a call to advance, we miss something significant. The concept of standing, of standing fast, of defending territory. Territory that has already been claimed and won. See, if you've read the back of the book, you know the end of the story, don't you? We win. And, and the territory that I speak of today is continuing to be contested, but the reality is the victory has already been determined, and our calling today is to stand fast, to be steadfast, to defend that territory, to defend our families, to defend the church, to defend our very souls until that day when Christ comes and finalizes this victory that has already been determined at the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. We're going to finish out the book of Ephesians and read verses 10 through 24. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. The words are also found in the screen in front of you. Apostle Paul writes these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, 
and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Would you join me in, for a moment in prayer? Lord, as we unpack this text this morning, I pray that the words that I speak as we look at these verses would not be my words, but they would be your words. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Over the course of the past several weeks, Pastor Jared has, has unpacked the book of Ephesians for us. We've walked through it with the theme of the church alive. That theme came from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul says we are made alive together with Christ. We've talked about how God desires to tear down the walls that divide us. How God desires to, to, to build relationships that picture the gospel of Jesus Christ. To do so in the home, in marriage, and between parents and their children. In every case, the new realities of this church that is no longer dead, but is alive, these new realities are countercultural. They're radical. And when we get serious about living out this righteous calling that Ephesians paints for us, we rouse the frustration and the anger of the adversary. Pastor Alistair Begg put it this way, the evil one has been unable to prevent us from becoming the children of God. But given that that is the case, he is now seeking to do everything in his power to prevent us from living as the children of God. That's why Paul ends the letter in this way. After he's drawn our attention to what living as the children of God looks like, he says in order to do that, you're going to need to take up some armor and stand your ground. Otherwise, make no mistake about it, you will lose your ground. You will lose your footing. So let's dig into this familiar text. I'm sure if you have been raised in church or you've been going for any amount of time, you've heard this preached before. And because I'm a military guy and because this is a military-themed text, I'm going to break this down into three sections. I'm going to give you three, three uh, military terms. The first is our operation orders. We're going to talk about what the orders are. Second, our armor kit. And third, our weapons. Let's start with these orders. In the military, an operation order is a directive. It's given to us by a higher-level commander. It's, it's given to the subordinates in order to affect the coordinated execution of a specific operation. Our operation order here in this text is found in the first three verses of our passage. Paul begins those verses with the word finally. Now, when you hear a preacher say finally, you know what that means, don't you? Absolutely nothing. Um, and I, and I think actually when Paul says finally, you know, Paul generally has something else to say as well. But, but the reason that Paul uses the word finally here is, is not to wrap things up. Actually, the way the word is used here is henceforward or for the remainder of time. Paul wants us to understand that the battle that we are up against has no ceasefires. It has no temporary cessations. It will not stop raging until heaven is finally attained. If you listen to a preacher tell you that if you'll just come to Jesus, everything will be swell. 
If you've listened to a TV preacher tell you that if you'll come to Jesus, you'll live your best life now. If you've listened to any preachers tell you that if you come to Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy, and that it'll be smooth sailing, you've bought into a lie. My dad was a simple-minded man. And he had a very sophisticated way of describing uh, theology like this. He would call it hogwash. In all seriousness, ladies and gentlemen, while the evil one was summarily defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ, he's still thrashing around doing as much damage as he possibly can until Christ comes and finally completely frees us from the effects of sin. Paul's point then is this. Expect conflict. Expect hard times. Expect spiritual warfare. Expect to be attacked by the enemy at every turn. He wants to trip you up to destroy your marriage, your home, your family, your testimony in the world around you. In light of that, Paul gives us two objectives in these orders, as it were. The first is a passive objective, and the second is active. The first is this. It's found in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The verb here is a passive one. This is not something you can do. You can't just decide to be strong in the Lord. No, no, you are strengthened in the Lord. And in the strength or literally the efficacy of his strength, of his might. We're to be continually strengthened in the Lord. We're to draw every day our strength from the well of the living water. Our might is to come from him, not from ourselves. And so if you're trying to gain strength to fight the battles each and every day on your own, then you're always going to come up wanting. What's that look like, preacher? How do you be strong in the Lord? Well, I'm glad you asked. It looks like making your relationship with Jesus Christ the most significant relationship in your life. That's more important than your spouse, more important than your children, more important than yourself. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is this central relationship. It looks like surrounding yourself with other followers of Jesus Christ who will spur you on and they will encourage you. It looks like worshiping not only on Sundays, but worshiping throughout the week by the things that you feed your mind, by the music that you listen to, by the programs that you watch. You see, the only way to be strong in the Lord is to spend time with the Lord regularly, not just for this hour on Sunday mornings. We're going to come back to being in the Word. We're going to come back to praying in just a few minutes. But for now, suffice it to say that if we are to be strong in His might, it means we've got to spend a lot of time with Him in order to be strengthened by Him. Objective number two under these orders is an active one. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, literally the trickery, the craftiness of the devil. While being strengthened is not something we can do for ourselves, the verb here is actually an active imperative. It's a command. Paul says, put it on, take it up, hide in it, be enveloped by the armor of God, clothe yourself with the armor of God, sink into the armor of God. As I studied this week, I was reminded of the story of David and Goliath. And I was reminded that when David showed up at the battlefield and Goliath was taunting the Israelites, that Saul wanted David to take up his armor. Well, the thing is, that wasn't David's armor. David was comfortable with his slingshot. Here's the thing in in this text. This is the very armor of God. 
This isn't just your armor or my armor. This is the armor of God. And the reason I think, I think it's important to, to remember that is, is, you know, oftentimes preachers will talk about this text and, and they'll begin by saying that Paul was in chains when he wrote this. Absolutely correct. Probably chained to a Roman soldier, right? And so he may have looked at that soldier and said, hmm, there's a great metaphor for Christian living right there. Let me, let me look at the different pieces of armor. But what we miss when we stick with that image is the fact that Paul was so steeped in the word of God that he would have remembered the book of Isaiah chapter 59 verse 17 where we're told that God put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Paul didn't just come up with this image. This is actually the armor of God, the very armor that belongs to God. The armor that you're being told to don isn't just any armor. No, it's the very armor of God Almighty. As Christians, what do we need for the fight? Truth? Yes. But not just any truth. We need God's truth. Righteousness? Yes. But not human righteousness, which is as filthy rags, we're told in Scripture. We need God's righteousness. Good news? Yes, but not just any good news. We need the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peace? Not earthly peace. No, we need peace from God. Faith? Not faith in anyone that can fail us or anything that can fail us. No, we need the faith that comes from God. Do you see that? God isn't just giving you any armor today. No, he's directing you to be enveloped in, to hide yourself in his armor. So two objectives, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the armor of God. Before we can leave this order, which includes these various pieces, we need to identify the end state toward which our objectives are aimed, as well as the enemy that we are up against. In the military, we talk a lot about end state. See, in order to have an operation, we need to understand what it looks like if we're successful. If we do this, what's the other side of that objective look like? And that's what we mean when we say end state. And here's the end state for Paul. It's in verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Greek word here literally means to, to stand still. It means to stand your ground, to not lose footing, to stand ready, to stand firm, to stand fast. Now, this is the emphasis I was making earlier, and Paul's point here by the use of this word repeatedly, the word stand, you find it over and over again in this passage, is that our primary role, our primary job as soldiers of Jesus Christ is defensive. Why? Because the battle's already been won. We're called to, to protect, to stand for this ground, to, to stand firm. There will be some combat. We'll address that in a moment. But the point of the armor that we're to put on is that we are to hold this position that has already been won in Jesus Christ. Because make no mistake about it, Christ has already defeated Satan in the cross. And the armor of God allows us to hold that territory which has already been claimed and already been declared to be his. The objectives, be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God. The desired end state, stand fast against Satan. Before Paul launches into this detailed look at the armor of God, he includes one more thing in our operation order, the identification of the enemy. Look at verse 12 if you've got your Bibles open. He writes this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'll never forget the up-close encounter I had with demonic activity. I was a young chaplain in the Air Force at the time, assigned to my very first assignment in Melmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. And as chaplains, we're on call around the clock. And I got one of those calls that would come in from the first responders on base to a situation that was unfolding late one evening. I got into my vehicle, I drove to base, and when I showed up, I was escorted to a young man who'd been apprehended by our security forces on base. See, as it turns out, this young man had, had gone to the base exchange. He was there. The exchange is a shop, a, a store, for those of you who aren't military. He was there to buy a bottle of Gatorade. And as, as he was standing in line, there was a commander in line in front of him who was there to buy some batteries. And this young man would later report that he saw demons hovering over the commander in front of him. And so the young man took his bottle of Gatorade and endeavored to attack the demons. As you can imagine, that didn't go well. The young man took off running across base. He was eventually apprehended. But once the security forces and the first responders got there, they knew that they were up against something they had not seen before. And so they called me into the environment and the situation. I got to be honest with you. I wish I could stand here today and tell you that I cast out a demon that evening. I didn't. He asked me to pray for him. I did. And then, because he was a danger to himself and others, I escorted him in the ambulance to the hospital. But on the way to the hospital, I heard what I could only describe as demonic voices several times, speaking to me, telling me to get out of the ambulance and leave him alone. It was a frightening evening. Paul says the battle that you and I are engaged in, it's not a normal one. It's not a natural one. It is supernatural. And he gives us a full and a very frightening description of what we're up against. It's a description that should terrify you if you are going at it in your own armor. He begins, we do not wrestle. Now, what's the word wrestle mean? Every evening, my 15-year-old son thinks he needs to wrestle with me. He's in jujitsu, and so he's always trying to like, slap, slap me and trying to take me down. He doesn't understand old man strength, though. Dad, anybody else got that old man strength still? So I don't have any jujitsu move, but I still take him down each and every time. He's, like, he's over there saying, yeah, right, Dad, whatever. Um, but, but you know, when, when Paul says wrestle here, He's not talking about a casual wrestling. In, in Greek culture, there was actually a wrestling match in which the loser had his eyes gouged out. This wrestling that Paul's talking about here has very high stakes. And we immediately see then that there's a balance between defensive and offensive actions. Yes, we're supposed to stand our ground, but the reality is that evil is going to come at us. And when it does, we need to be ready to engage, to wrestle against it. Who is the enemy? Well, Paul identifies these evil forces as rulers, as authorities, and as powers and spiritual forces. Rulers are those that have local dominion. You know, we have a, just like we have a mayor of San Antonio and a mayor of Austin, the mayor of San Antonio has no authority in the city of Austin. We have a governor of Texas and a governor of Maine. If the governor of Texas goes up to Maine and tries to make decisions, the people of Maine are going to tell him to go home. He has no sway in the state of Maine. Well, rulers are local. Demons and spiritual forces, likewise, are assigned to different regions, it seems. They're not omnipresent. 
We need to understand that. Unlike God, the spiritual forces of wickedness can't be everywhere at all times. You know, so there's, there are rulers. There are also authorities. Authorities are different than rulers. The concept of authorities are, the, are folks that, are, um, that influence our values. These are forces that have, have influence over the way we think. Think about our own culture. The me first, the my truth and your truth, the, the hedonistic, materialistic ways of our world, they're not Christian, but they're controlled and they're manipulated by spiritual forces that have authority over. Finally, he calls them cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul's already said that when we were saved, we were raised up and we were seated with Christ where? In the heavenly places, chapter 2, verse 6. Now he says, our enemies are the powers and forces for evil at war in those heavenly places where we have been raised up and seated. We've been placed there in the midst of a conflict that is still raging between light and darkness, between good and evil, between Satan and God, even though Satan knows that he has lost. Do you understand your operation orders? Your objectives are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and to put on the armor of God. Your desired end state is to stand fast. And the enemy that you face is none other than the rulers, authorities, and powers of darkness and evil. So with that said, let's look at the armor kit. Okay? Before we dig in, let me acknowledge something. There is absolutely no way that we can do an exhaustive look at each piece of the armor of God today. We could do a whole sermon series just on the armor of God. There are books that are written on each and every one of the pieces of armor. So we're going to do more of a 30,000-foot flyover. Sorry for any Marines or Army, Navy. I'm an Air Force guy, so that's the way I like to think. We're going to do an aerial view here, right? Um, but, but one other thing I want you to understand today is that this is not a buffet. You don't get to pick which piece of armor you want to take into battle. If you go into battle with one piece but not the other, you will not stand. Now, this is a, you need all of this. So what are these pieces? Well, the first piece of armor is the belt of truth. I was telling Pastor Jared uh, before church this morning that when I was growing up, my mom and dad uh, said I always had to have a belt on. Always had to have a belt on. And so to this day, if I go out without a belt on, I feel like I'm missing a piece of my clothing, right? Well, the belt that Paul's talking about here was a, a belt that the Roman soldier held that held or wore that held together his garments and also held his sword. It afforded the soldier a feeling of fortitude and strength. Commentators have looked at the belt of truth and they've suggested it could mean two things. It could mean the truth of God, the doctrines of the church, for instance, the revelation in the word of God, and it could also mean truthfulness and sincerity of heart. I think John Stott is correct when he says we don't have to choose one or the other. The belt of truth refers to both, right? Warfare begins with fixing our minds on the great doctrines of our faith, but it leads to life change because as we steep ourselves in the word of God and the doctrines that are so vital to us, they influence and they affect the way in which we live our daily lives. So the belt of truth, how do you put it on? Well, learn the doctrines of the church. Ground yourself in the fundamentals of our faith. Surround yourself with others who are more mature in the faith than are you. 
We have Sunday school classes you can join here. We have a discipleship program in which you can be enrolled in, and you can be paired up with someone else who's more mature, who can walk this walk with you and disciple you. You need truth to provide you the fortitude and the strength that are required for battle. Don't dare leave home without it. Stand fast with a belt of truth fastened around your waist. Here's the second piece of our, our armor kit. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Like truth, this could also have two meanings. It could be talking about what we call imputed righteousness. I'll tell you that in a minute. Or it could be talking about actual practical righteousness as it is lived out. You see, when you and I are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us. It is deposited into our account, as it were. And when God looks at you as a child of God, adopted by the blood of the Lamb, He sees you as pure and righteous, not of any merit on your own. But because that righteousness has been imputed, it has been given, it has been deposited to you. But as we go throughout our lives, I like to say that the Holy Spirit wants to make true in us what he has already declared to be true of us. We're being changed. We're being molded to be more and more like Jesus Christ, to embody the fruits of the Spirit. And the Ephesians, they would have already had the imputed righteousness. So I would suggest that what Paul's really talking about here is the need to live out that righteousness now. In Zechariah chapter 3, there's a scene in which the high priest, Joshua, is standing before the angel of the Lord in the temple. And he's accused by Satan of being sinful. Joshua is in filthy clothes, clothes that represent both his sin and the sin of the people. Satan is forcefully pointing to that sin when the angel intervenes and tells Joshua to take off his filthy clothes. And in place of those clothes... The angel gives Joshua new, clean garments. Then the angel charges Joshua to be holy, to live out the righteousness that has just been given to him. In the same way, church, you and I are given righteousness, and then we are called to live righteously. This morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you are not covered by the breastplate of righteousness. His purity has not been deposited into your account in exchange for sinfulness. That's the bad news. The good news is that righteousness is only a prayer away. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I'd urge you to come talk to Pastor Jared or myself before you leave today. But if you are a Christian, you are protected by that righteousness But you also need to go about taking seriously, living righteously, living holy lives. We're not perfect, nor will we be until Christ returns and we are glorified. However, our testimonies need to be consistent with our righteous calling. Our lives ought to point others to God's amazing grace. So stand fast, having the breastplate of righteousness in place. Third, Paul says we should have our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, this is the most awkward phrase of the entire armor of God. We assume Paul is talking about, if you were looking at a Roman soldier, the boot-like sandals that the soldiers wore. The Jewish historian Josephus writes of how Caesar's military was so successful because of the footwear that was issued to them. 
The boot-like sandals they had had studs in the bottom of them, which allowed them to gain traction as they pursued the enemy, but it also allowed them to dig in and stand fast in defense of their position. In much the same way, our feet need to be ready to take the gospel to wherever it needs to be spread. Here in San Antonio, oh, all the way to the ends of the earth. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3.15 that we ought to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. You know, on our very first date, my wife Erica and I watched the movie Forrest Gump. It had just been released for rental on VHS. Uh, young people, a VHS is a rectangular piece of plastic. It's got these two little reels in it, and, and we'd put it into a machine and we'd watch it. Um, and then, then, by the way, we had to wait for two or three minutes while it rewound back to the beginning. Otherwise, the video rental store would charge us a fee. Anybody remembering? Okay, I'm going down a rabbit hole here. Should stop that. But Forrest Gump. And, you know, Forrest Gump had some great quotes, didn't he? Especially from his mama. Like, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Another great one, though I think Lester remembered, was the quote that mama always says, there's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes. Where they're going, where they've been. I wonder today, if I could see the shoes that Paul talks about, if I could see your shoes today, and I could see the shoes that I wear, that Paul's speaking about, what would they say of us? Are they polished and clean and unscuffed and they look like they just came out of the box? Or are they worn? Are the souls worn down because we've taken the gospel to where it needed to go? Are you prepared to take the gospel when he calls you to do so? It may be to the ends of the earth. I'm just going to warn you, there may be someone here who's called to be a missionary. Or it might just be to someone in your own household or a co-worker. But stand fast, having fitted your feet with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Here's the fourth piece of armor. It's the shield of faith. Now, Roman soldiers had two shields. There was a small one that they used for hand-to-hand -hand combat, and then there was a large oblong one that would be used when advancing into battle. It's actually this large oblong one that Paul's talking about here. It was about four and a half feet tall by about two feet wide, and it was made of two pieces of wood that were glued together, and then it was, it was covered in linen and bound at the top and the bottom by iron. One commentator I read suggested it would have been like carrying around a kitchen door with you into battle. It was that heavy and that large. But here's the thing, it covered the soldier's entire body when they got behind it. And when soldiers advanced into battle, they would do so in rows of shields, side by side. The adversary dreaded seeing Roman soldiers advancing at them with these shields. Paul's saying our faith should be like that. It should cover us completely. It should link us up with other soldiers of Christ. It should protect us against this war with Satan. Preacher, you say, I struggle with my faith. I struggle with doubt. My faith is weak. Well, don't forget that Jesus said that faith the size of a what? Mustard seed can move mountains. Remember that in Ephesians 1 verse 18, Paul prays that this church will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they may know what is the hope to which he's called them. I think that implies that they don't yet know, at least fully, the meaning of the hope to which he's called them. That their faith was still being built strong. 
And then remember the father of the child possessed by the unclean spirit that Jesus cast out, who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Here's the good news. According to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, and he can not only give you faith, but he can perfect your faith. Stand fast then, having the shield of faith in place. And finally, take up the helmet of salvation. Salvation could literally mean here that we are saved, right? That we're born again, and that makes sense. But Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, about the hope of salvation as a helmet. The hope of salvation as a helmet. That seems to be what we're talking about here, what Paul is referring to, our destiny rather than our current state. So he's not just saying put on the fact that you are saved as a helmet. He's saying put on the fact that you know you will be one day saved. You will be completely saved. It's about going into war already knowing that the final outcome has been determined. If we as military members were to go into combat, knowing that not only would we come home safely, but that we're going to win the war, it would give us a new level of confidence. I think that's what Paul's pointing out here. You know, it was said of the troops of Lord Cromwell that they never lost because they were Calvinist. And they knew their destiny was secure, and they were fighting a battle they had been led to, by God to fight. You know, that should be true of each and every one of us. We suffer setbacks, but we should never, ever lose heart because we know we will be saved in the end. Stand fast, having taken up the helmet of salvation. So we've got our operation orders. We've got our armor kit. Now it's critical that we also carry two weapons into battle. As a military chaplain, I'm the only service member that doesn't carry a weapon into battle. Did you know that? Doctors and lawyers, they're also non-combatants according to the Geneva Convention, but they carry weapons to defend themselves. The chaplain is the only person who doesn't carry a firearm into battle and who's not even allowed to take training. I can tell you in the training that I did before I went to Afghanistan, that reality hit home real quickly when I went into active shooter rooms and had no way to defend myself. But it got real solemn when I landed in Afghanistan and was surrounded by third country nationals, by Afghans who could turn on me at any time and I had no way to defend myself. I found myself having to lean into the two weapons that I were told here in this text are at our disposal, the word of God and prayer. Paul first of all refers to our first weapon as the sword of the spirit. This is the only offensive, truly offensive item listed by Paul. The word refers to a short sword that Roman soldiers carried with them for close combat. Paul says our sword is the word of God. Now, if you know the Bible well and you know anything about Greek, you've probably heard the word logos before. But that's not the word that Paul uses here when he talks about the word of God. No, the word that's used here is actually rhema. It's a saying. It's a particular writing of the Word of God. John 3.16 is a rhema. Romans 3.23 is a rhema. Paul says we're to overcome Satan by particular words or portions of Scripture. 
He must have had in mind the model of Jesus overcoming temptation in the wilderness when he said repeatedly, it is written, and then quoted the very word of God. And I want to say to you this morning that if Jesus Christ, the very Logos, the word of God incarnate, the Lion of Judah, the great I Am, if he needed to know Scripture and quote Scripture in order to defeat Satan in the wilderness, how much more do I? How much more do you? Well, you say, preacher, I've got a pretty general idea of what the Bible means. I, I, I believe it's God's word. Well, that's good, but it's not enough. We must know the specific sayings of Scripture in order to resist the devil. Because Satan will not simply flee because you tell him to. He will retreat when the words of God are spoken into the midst of combat. A few years ago, I purchased this. Now, this sword has my family crest on it, and, and it actually hangs on my wall at home. It's a great conversation piece. It's a reminder of where I came from, but you know this sword has never done a bit of good. It's actually a rather expensive dust collector. For one thing, it's dull. Maybe if it was sharpened, it, it might do some good. But even if it were sharp, I'm not strong enough to be swinging this thing around, and I don't know the first thing about how to use it. So it'll continue to look nice on my wall. I wonder how often the same could be said of our Bibles. How often do they collect dust until Sunday mornings when we bring them? But they haven't done you much good throughout the week. Stand fast and take up the sword of the Spirit. And finally, the second weapon in our arsenal is none other than prayer. Can I be real with you? This has always been a struggle for me. I go through valleys and mountaintop experiences in my prayer life. There are times when I crave prayer, when I want to talk to my Savior so badly, and there are other times that I don't feel like it. I admire people who've got these prayer closets with these long prayer lists, and if you're one of those people, I thank God for you. But I, I've had those seasons, I go through those seasons, but I can't say it's always me. And I think I know why especially after having studied this passage again this week, because the enemy wants nothing more than for you and I to neglect the word of God and prayer. You see, friends, you and I can be clothed with the whole armor of God and yet fail to triumph for one reason, because we don't call upon God. Paul says we are to pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and he includes himself in that. At all times, that means in crisis and rejoicing, in ordinary and extraordinary times. It means you don't just pray when you find out that you're losing your job. It means you don't just pray when someone you love is deathly ill. It means you don't just pray in a moment of crisis. No, you pray at all times. That doesn't mean 24-7. It doesn't mean driving down the 1604 you're praying. Well, actually, maybe you should pray when you're driving down the 1604. But it means that we should be continuously at all times in the middle of the night when you wake up praying throughout the day when you're at work, praying at home, praying with all prayer and supplication means we should pray in all forms of prayer, right? Too often our prayers are one type of prayer. They're asking God for things. We don't take time to adore him. We don't take time to confess our sins. We don't take time to pray in thanksgiving. 
We ought to pray in all forms of prayer. Just read the book of Psalms and you'll find many of those forms of prayer. And Paul continues, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for him. He probably had this in mind as he finished the letter, urging the church to pray for him and describing how he would send Tychicus, who would fill them in on how he was doing so they might pray for him better. Like Paul, we should pray for Christians we know. Pray for the people you're sitting around this morning, but pray for Christians you don't know too. Pray for Christians who are persecuted. Pray for Christians who are in leadership positions. Pray for Christians around the world. Why? Because it's the most that we can do. I've heard people so many times say, oh, I'm so sorry, I wish I could give or I wish I could do something, but all I can do is pray. No, all you can do is pray. It is the most powerful thing you can do. It's why James says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And prayer, along with the Word of God, are the two weapons that He's given us to continue to stand fast. If we're going to fight a spiritual war, we need to fight it with spiritual weapons. As we prepare to close this morning and we draw this series to a conclusion, we know the kind of lives we've been called to live. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been seated with Him in the heavenly realms. But the more we cling to that calling, the more we take seriously that life, the more the adversary will be on the prowl like a roaring, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You and I were never promised a life of comfort or of ease or even peacefulness. No, the peace that Christ gives to us can only be experienced in the midst of a relentless struggle against evil. On the front of the Vietnam-era Claymore mine were three words. Hopefully you can make them out on the image in front of you. Front toward enemy. Of course, they were there to direct the ex explosion outward. But those three words have become kind of a, a rally cry for many military members today. You'll find them on morale pouch, patches that, that we wear on our uniforms or on our luggage. They are also our call in spiritual warfare. Front toward enemy. Never retreat. Our operation orders are clear. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God. Our desired end state is that we stand fast and not lose the ground that has already been won at the cross of Jesus Christ. And our armor, our armor is none other than the designed and worn armor of God himself. And our weapons, they're the sword of the spirit and prayer. John Bunyan's 1678 Christian allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, is about a man's journal, journey to the celestial cities and the trials that he endures along the way. Toward the end of the journey, he and his fellow travelers see a man that's making a solemn noise, a man who's on his knees with hands and eyes lifted up and speaking as they thought to no one that was above. As these pilgrims engage this man who just moments ago we know was lost earnestly in prayer, he shares that he struggled with a woman who is soon determined to be a witch who has endeavored to seduce him numerous times. The story recounts her wicked ways and her shameless ploys to this man and to countless others. And when he was at his wit's end, this man shares, tired and angered by her relentless pursuit, he fell to his knees, raised up his hands, lifted up his eyes, and prayed to God. To rescue him. It's then that the pilgrims arrive, and this weary traveler joined their journey as they made their way to Beulah Land. The traveler's name? Stand Fast. 
I wonder this morning if there are those within the sound of my voice or watching online today who are wearied by the journey. You've been trying to be faithful for a long time. You've been trying to be a good father, a good husband, a good mother, a good wife, a good Christian. But you're worn out. You've been beaten down. You've been discouraged. And you are battered by the pursuit of the enemy. You're at your wit's end. In the hymn that has become a pillar of our faith, a mighty fortress is our God, Martin Luther, who at the time of the writing was going through one of the darkest periods of his life. He was facing a pandemic. The bubonic plague had come to Wittenberg, Germany. He buried his own daughter, and he was being persecuted by the church. During all that, he wrote these words. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. This morning, if you're relying on your own strength, I've got bad news for you. Your strength is not enough for this battle. You are not strong enough. But Luther goes on, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. My friends, this morning all you need for this journey, everything that you need to stand fast, Everything you need to overcome the darkness, the pressures, the temptations, the enticements, the things that threaten to undo you, everything you need to stand fast is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who on the cross of Calvary declared, it is finished. The one who in a much more final sense than Sergeant Farrell ever could have imagined announced, I got him, of the devil. The battle has already been won. And now, if you'll kneel before him, you can stand fast until the day he returns. Would you pray with me?